everyone, and thank you for joining me. I'm Tracy Harris, and this is At Home in My Head, the podcast that explores life in the cottage at Woodland Corners. Happy Juneteenth, 2021. Earlier this week, I watched President Biden sign Juneteenth into federal holiday status. Despite the culture wars raging all around us, it passed the Senate unanimously and made it through the House of Representatives with only 14 no votes. Ironically, two of those votes came from Republican representatives in Texas, where Juneteenth has been an uncontroversial holiday in their home state literally for decades. What caught my attention was the objection of Chip Roy, who has represented the Texas 21st District since 2019 and who had this to say, quote, The holiday should not be called Juneteenth National Independence Day, but rather Juneteenth National Emancipation or Freedom or Otherwise Day. This name needlessly divides our nation on a matter that should instead bring us together by creating a separate Independence Day based on the color of one's skin, Roy is correct. It does create a new Independence Day based on the color of one's skin, because historically the first Independence Day we celebrate on July 4th was based on the color of one's skin. We just don't like to think about that too deeply, or, it seems, even acknowledge or admit it. It seems a lot of people in the U.S. are taking a similar position. If we ignore it or downplay our racist past, we can pretend it didn't happen or it wasn't that bad. I suspect that at least part of that motive, recognized or not, is to ignore and downplay the results of that history that have never been adequately addressed or rectified. I shared out some recorded testimony of former enslaved people on social media, and a theme I heard was how they were turned out like farm animals that were no longer useful. With no means, nowhere to go, and no skills except for service or labor for which they'd been exploited, they were desperate and ripe for new forms of exploitation. The New York Times has an 1865 article in their archives from Texas entitled Negroes and the Labor Question, General Advance in Wages, feelings of the people, the crops, condition of the country. The article warns the newly freed slaves that they should stay with their former masters that are now referred to as employers. They should not travel public streets without permission from their employers, not congregate near any towns, basically don't exist in homeless encampments, and finally the article warns landlords not to rent housing to former enslaved people. The article also makes it clear that in light of the new situation, white leadership will be beefing up their white police forces to enforce all of these newly required security measures to keep white people safe from the threat of black emancipated slaves. This was what emancipation looked like for former enslaved people. And since that time, black citizens generally have had to struggle against the white establishment, expending blood, sweat, and tears for every inch of ground they could gain fighting their way through the same legal system that institutionalized, codified, and upheld their brutal enslavement for so many generations. It was the same legal system indigenous Americans had to struggle through to prove that displacement efforts by Jackson and Van Buren were illegal land grabs. And for all their hard work in using that cumbersome legal scaffolding to prove to white people using our own white laws that it was illegal, not just immoral, to commit genocide and displace indigenous populations, our executive powers simply noted that our judicial branch has no enforcement authority and continued to illegally slaughter and steal the lands in what became known to history as the Trail of Tears. 
U.S. slavery was a brutal system that included executions, severe beatings and penalties, and the rape of black women and girls in order to produce more property by enslaving one's own children. Before the U.S. existed as a nation, while we were still colonies, our slave laws were based on biblical systems of slavery, which held that the state of one's father, whether free or slave, determined one's fate. If your father was a free man, then you were free. If your father was a slave, you were a slave. But in 1655, an enslaved woman, Elizabeth Key Grinstead, sued in Virginia, claiming her father was a free man. She won the case and her emancipation. As a result, the laws were changed to provide that children would maintain their mother's status rather than their father's. This caught on and became the status quo. When you make the game, you make the rules. When you make the rules, you can change them when they stop benefiting you. It was clear who was making the rules in the U.S. The same people who revolted against the British government and created a new set of rules in order to form, quote, a more perfect union, unquote. And their idea of more perfect included slavery, no right to vote for women, and the genocide and displacement of indigenous Americans. Circling back to Roy's comment, the U.S. Revolution was not for everyone. It was a specific dispute for a specific group, and that group benefited from revolution. They then set up their own system where all the benefits and privileges belonged solely to them. We sometimes hear that some of the founders were opposed to slavery. Nobody should confuse that with a belief in equity for all. Whatever abolitionist leanings some of them professed, Every one of them signed on to a document that founded a new nation that included all the injustice and brutality of our system of codified, institutionalized, race-based slavery. If I wanted to found a new nation, and someone suggested that we strike a compromise to enslave a particular demographic of the population, stripping them of all human status and codifying their existence as property, that would be a non-starter. Everyone who signed the Constitution agreed to that condition. Every one. A common justification is to say the attitude of white supremacy was pervasive back then, and so we can't blame the founders for believing the white race was superior and that people who were not white were inferior. However, this erases the experience and expressions of the people who were non-white. Many of them understood they were just as human and just as entitled to their own culture and way of life. But the historic record belongs with the victors, and so non-whites, for the most part, had no voice, were not respected by white people, and did not have access to the levers of white power required to change anything within the white system they were compelled to navigate. Beyond that, though, whether white people were broadly under this misconception or not does not change the fact that this is the very definition of white supremacy and the foundation of ideological racism. Being able to explain why someone is a white supremacist does not change the fact that they are a white supremacist. And it does not change the fact that white supremacist ideology was codified into our founding documents, including our Constitution. While they reserved the right to create and change the rules, and denied that same power to everyone else, they still required everyone else to be subject to those rules. The same men who denounced taxation without representation were perfectly fine subjecting everyone else to their rules without representation. 
U.S. leaders do not sit with indigenous leaders and let indigenous customs and traditions define whether or not it was okay to displace people and conscript them into a death march to a new location. U.S. leaders did not ask people shipped here as slaves whether they agreed to their situation, conditions, and the rules. U.S. leaders did not ask women if they agreed to anything about this more perfect union. Perfect for whom exactly? It's not difficult to understand. Meanwhile, I see the traces of our racism and our white supremacy everywhere. I didn't used to. In fact, it wasn't that long ago I posted the series on indoctrination that started this podcast. In it, I claim that education and indoctrination are qualitatively different. Currently, while I believe they should be distinct processes, I now realize they are sometimes the same. Formal education is a convenient architecture to use for indoctrination. If I want to indoctrinate people, what better venue than compulsory public schools where young minds are being shaped and molded? As a side note, I want to call this out for people who claim I can't admit when I'm wrong. I used to believe that using education systems to indoctrinate was something that was done in other countries, but not in the U.S. I was wrong. We do use our education system to indoctrinate, and just like I pointed out in my indoctrination series, one method to keep someone from investigating is to simply ignore information. Don't bring it up, don't talk about it, don't mention it, and a child will be less likely to consider it. I talked about how apologist Josh McDowell only presented information that supported his arguments while holding back information that did not. He had to have been aware of it because it would have been within the pages of the other information he found that he did use. When it comes to our own historic slavery, the arguments excusing it align with arguments defending biblical slavery. I wouldn't doubt that a big part of that comes from the conservative Christian acceptance of slavery as mundane and the fact that conservative Christian ideology has molded a lot of our society in ways that can still be seen. In other words, when I need to defend slavery in my religious ideology, it serves me to defend it in the broader society. And Christianity has played a major role in shaping our society and social attitudes about all sorts of issues impacting sexuality, gender identity, sexual orientation, appropriate family structures, work ethics, and much more. Meanwhile, I find that some folks who condemn biblical slavery seem to still carry with them an internalized attitude of slavery overall as being not a big deal. Christians will say, that was the Old Testament. And U.S. citizens will say, that was the past. Both will say that it was pervasive and accepted or a necessary evil, quote, back then. What's more surprising is that it's much more recent in the U.S. past, with the last recorded former enslaved person dying in the 1970s, during my living memory. There was an amazing essay penned last year called My Body is a Monument by Caroline Randall Williams. In it, she says the following, quote, I have rape-colored skin. My light brown blackness is a living testament to the rules, the practices, causes of the Old South. If there are those who want to remember the legacy of the Confederacy, if they want monuments, well, then my body is a monument. My skin is a monument. Unquote. Her point is clear and beautifully expressed. Her light-skinned black existence is a testament to the brutality of our history to the pervasive white rape of black women and girls. I have other friends who have expressed something similar. Some of them actually descended from specific victims and perpetrators in their own lineage. But something as personal and simple and evident, 
as the color of skin is a trace of our brutal past. If you look closely, you see the reminders everywhere. I engaged in a conversation on social media about these traces, and clothing styles were brought up. I used them as symbols of cultural oppression and assimilation. We brought black people to the U.S. from all over Africa. We stripped their culture and their heritage and their ancestry. We dressed them as white poor people, or in the case of enslaved people who worked in the big houses, some dressed somewhat better. But forever in the clothes of white people. We genocidally killed nations of indigenous people. We took their children and we put them into religiously oriented classrooms. We erased their culture, heritage, and ancestry. We dressed them in the clothing of white people. There are some interesting composites online of juxtaposed images of indigenous children in their own villages and then in white schools where they're dressed in white clothing. This is a quote from one of the articles I'm linking in the description. Quote, At boarding schools, staff forced indigenous students to cut their hair and use new Anglo-American names. They forbid children from speaking their native language and observing their religious and cultural practices. And by removing them from their homes, the schools disrupted students' relationships with their families and other members of their tribe. Once they returned home, children struggled to relate to their families after being taught that it was wrong to speak their native language or practice their religion, unquote. This was not cultural transference. This was forced cultural assimilation. It impacted not just clothing, but hair, religion, names, language. No stone was left unturned. No relic of their non-white identity was respected. We separated them from every aspect of their culture and replaced it with a whiteness. All the things white people declared as better. Because of this thorough attempt to destroy any remnant of non-white identity, traces remain all around us. A documentary on Netflix called Good Hair looks at the network and industry around giving black women hair that more resembles white ideals. To this day, natural black hair still struggles to find acceptance in white society. I happened upon a few different pieces of media recently that reflected the clothing symbolism. A documentary about palm oil, a documentary about coltan mining, and a Netflix fantasy series called Invisible City. In both documentaries, white assimilation is featured. Workers are dressed as poor whites and subjected to indignities. Those willing to adopt the white model of exploitative success dress more like modern white businessmen. It's easy to observe that the more able indigenous individuals are at assimilating to white models and ideals, the more they're rewarded with white expressions of success. In the Coltan film particularly, I watch scenes of men surrounded by women who also emulate Western ideals, wearing expensive Western suits, driving flashy cars, eating expensive meals in Western-style restaurants in the city, all because they have adopted Western models and learned how to exploit their peers to benefit white-owned corporations and Western consumers. The better they are at understanding how to make themselves valuable to white interests, the more they are rewarded. All of this comes at the expense of people who are more rural and who don't even understand what their legal rights are or know how to access due process or raise a legal complaint. They are abused and exploited because they can be without consequences. Often it's not legal, 
but the laws aren't relevant because in reality, it's happening. They are vulnerable because they are disenfranchised and marginalized. They don't have representation, and that's okay as long as Western consumers can have cell phones and toothpaste because that's what's important in the world that has been shaped by colonialism. The fantasy series Invisible City was similar, except the fact it's fiction means that someone purposely used clothing as symbolism. It works because it's art imitating life, and viewers are able to recognize it. But if they can't, it's actually called out in the series directly. I don't think it's a plot spoiler, but the premise is an indigenous community that inhabits land in the Amazon area that is desired by a white wealthy concern. The people are being bought out of their homes, and some of them don't want to leave. It's a common theme in a lot of films. One character, however, believes that they should sell and take up new lives in the city. This character begins to act as a go-between for the white interests and the community of which he is a member. Another character describes how the go-between began to change the way he looked. And in the flashback scene, we observe that he is now wearing a sport coat, button-up shirt, and slacks. He has now adopted the look of casual white affluence, which symbolizes his break from the village and his culture and the assimilation into the Western world. We can observe endless subtleties that reflect a white supremacist past. But the glaring observations are that we kept people as property, we turned them out like cattle when we were forced to give up that institution, and we have never corrected it. We codified some things, saying black citizens can vote, followed by a lot of laws stopping them from voting, followed by legislation to protect those voting rights, followed by a landslide of retaliatory legislation when they actually use their votes to actual political effect. We said they can't be discriminated against, but we all know that it's difficult to prove that the reason someone didn't get a job or a house or an opportunity or equal resource access was discrimination. If I wanted to discriminate, do I really believe it would be that difficult to get away with it? Does anyone? Considering my social circle and immediate friends, I could discriminate without even trying because most of the people I actually come in contact with in my life are white. I have to go out of my way to interact with someone who isn't white, and that's by social design. Neighborhoods are still very segregated despite laws banning segregation. When we see that about 9% of the white population struggles with poverty, but that it's nearly 30% in black communities, why is it so difficult to recognize that this is not a new problem? It's an old problem that has never been addressed. There was no point in our history where black citizens met white citizen levels of social success and then lost it. Our society has never been successful at making black citizens and black communities successful. And we need to do better. Our history is one of both intentional and unintentional disproportionate harm to black people and communities that has never actually stopped, regardless of laws on the books. Today, there are still people who have a great deal of difficulty seeing how these dots line up, how we move from one point to another to another to ultimately come to a place that is unsurprising and makes perfect sense. They will entertain any explanation except the obvious one. Racism in our society is baked in. And until we figure out how to fix it, black citizens will suffer and our society will continue to stress fracture from that unrest. So even while we celebrate our new national holiday, a recognition that black history is U.S. history, 
we still have people who protest it, like Chip Roy, because it doesn't fit their narrative that back in 1776, freedom rang for all of us. It didn't. It clearly didn't. And that was by design. I'd accuse them of trying to intentionally mislead, except it took me forever to realize it myself. The facts were always there, but the way they were presented kept me from placing slavery next to 1776 to see the disparity. It didn't keep my fellow black citizens from realizing it. For the most part, they've always realized it. Unfortunately, though, their voices have not been consistently amplified enough to be heard by those in power, those who don't look like them, and who have a great deal of difficulty understanding that they don't understand. Their voices are drowned out by white ideologies and white experiences that dominated my education. Fingers crossed that we can keep the momentum to do better going forward. In the meantime, happy Juneteenth 2021. That's it for this episode of At Home in My Head, exploring life in the cottage at Woodland Corners. Thanks for listening, and as always, stay safe, be well, and never stop exploring.